I'm R.J. Brennan. I am the uh, recent past president of the Chicago chapter of Cornet Global, and welcome. 180 people strong. Wow, this is an incredible turnout for a Monday right after the holidays. Appreciate all you taking the time out to uh, come down here and, uh, and spend some time with us. Today's topic is uh, particularly pertinent from a timing standpoint. And uh, I wish we could claim credit for having thought this all through beforehand, but it's our annual uh, Chicago Federal Reserve uh, talk about the economic forecast for the year. So uh, let me introduce you to our speakers in reverse order. Uh, Rick Mattoon is a senior economist and economic advisor in the Economic Research Department of the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Rick's primary research focus on issues that focus the, uh, sorry, face the Midwest uh, regional economy. His analysis of electricity restructuring and energy issues, higher education policy, regional economic development, and state and local government finance has appeared in numerous publications. Uh, Rick has served as a lecturer at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern, and he's been with the Chicago Federal Reserve since 1990, so we have a long, rich history. Our first speaker will be Bill Strauss. Uh, Bill and Rick have been both in tremendous demand um, over this past year and, and even more so this year. Uh, uh, Bill did over 100 speaking engagements last year, so uh, and they're looking at doing even more than that. And for any of you that are missing that, it's two a week. I don't know how he get his work, gets his work done otherwise. Uh, Bill is a senior, a senior economist and economic advisor in the Economic Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago which he joined in 1982. His chief responsibilities include analyzing the current performance of both the Midwest economy and the manufacturing sector for use in monetary policy. He also produces the monthly Chicago Fed Midwest Manufacturing Index and organizes the bank's annual economic outlook symposium and annual auto outlook symposium. He also conducts several economic workshops and industrial roundtrip tables throughout the year. Please join me in welcoming Bill Strauss. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. So, um, we'll see how this uh, microphone, okay. Uh, so, it's happy to join you this morning, or this afternoon. Um, so, we're going to talk about the economy. And as we all know, on December 1st, the National Bureau of Economic Research made it official what many of us uh, in the room had thought about for a while which is that the economy uh, was in a recession. In fact, it entered a recession in January of last year. Uh, so we have gone now uh, about 12 months uh, for the economy being in a recession. And of course, the question is, uh, how long will it last? How deep will it be? And, and I'll try to talk a little bit about that uh, this, this afternoon. Um, so to, just to keep things in perspective, I mean, the, some of the charts that I'm presenting are pretty ugly. Uh, in appearance. And so <coughs> if there are any little children in the room, you might want to take them out. Um, they're not really not for their consumption at this point. Um, so the, the economy is facing a lot of headwinds, uh, certainly with the, the housing issues, the, the credit issues, uh, higher energy prices to begin the year. Uh, so th there were a lot of issues that uh, the economy has dealt with and continues to deal with. That being said, all in all, uh, it's, the outlook is for things to be still fairly downbeat for the year. Um, uh, it's going to take us a while to work through these imbalances. 
that being said, uh, you know, we also have to keep in mind that on the other hand, there are some very positive things that are certainly in play. Uh, one of which we'll see are energy prices. Energy prices, you know, reached a peak of closing on a daily basis at $147 a barrel in July. And probably very few of us in the room would have made a prediction that by the end of the year, uh, we would see its price cut by two-thirds. Uh, so that we'd be looking at prices below $50 a barrel. So, and, you know, we had gasoline prices sit, sitting at around $4 and change. Uh, it's now below $2 a gallon. For every one penny decline in the price of gasoline, that can, that, given how much we consume as a nation, that translates into a billion dollars additional spending uh, available to the consumer. So this more than $2 reduction in the price of gasoline is basically equivalent to over a $200 billion stimulus uh, to, with regard to consumer spending. That being said, uh, we also have a couple of other issues uh, to keep in mind. Number one, the housing issue that we are uh, been struggling with. This is not a new phenomenon. Uh, we have been uh, seeing the housing sector fall apart since 2006. So we've had 06, 07, and 08 for this sector to, to, uh, to go down. I think we're all in agreement that while maybe we can question when the turnaround will occur, I think we could all agree the fact that we are closer to the bottom than we are to the top. So eventually this will have less of a, of a drag with regard to economic activity as it has had over the past three years. Finally, we can't ignore the fact that I like to think that monetary policy still has an impact uh, with regard to uh, the economy. Working at the Fed, I think that's a good view to have. Um, so we have done a lot of, of, of programs, new introduced programs, uh, as well as our primary tool of, of really being extremely stimulative uh, with regard to economic activity. Uh, these programs have lags. Certainly, uh, much of it will begin to have some, some impact on the economy uh, in 2009, and has probably kept the economy from being as bad as it might otherwise have been, even during 2008. Add to that the fiscal stimulus, which we had some of that early last year, and we've got more on the way. What that exactly will translate into, we'll just have to wait and see uh, when Congress makes its, its proposals. Um, but there was talk about it happening in, uh, by January 20th. It appears that now that will be a little bit more delayed. But nonetheless, the amounts that are being talked about out there are, are very, very significant and, will, again, will clearly have some, some positive impact uh, with regard to the economy. So with that in mind, let's take a look at how we are performing as an economy. So our best measurement of that is the growth rate of real GDP, uh, growth, the real GDP growth. On a year-over-year -year basis, we have data through the third quarter. We don't have that fourth quarter in quite yet. But you can see that even though the economy entered a recession at the beginning of 2008, we actually had the first two quarters showing growth that occurred. Uh, the second quarter in particular was, was due to uh, that fiscal stimulus that came in, all those checks that were distributed uh, in the springtime of last year, boosted consumer spending in the second quarter, and then, as you can see, we had a slight decline in the third quarter. Um, and so the, we, we see that growth at this point is, is being uh, challenged. So 
the Economic Outlook Symposium, which we held at the Chicago Fed in early December, uh, forecasters uh, came up with what they see happening on the economy. And the third line there is the growth of, of GDP. So they expect that when the fourth quarter comes in, which will be negative in their opinion, quite negative, uh, it's going to translate into a year-over-year -year basis of a 0.2% growth for the economy in 2008. And then what they're expecting for 2009 is growth to be 0.7%, still well below trend for our economy, which we think of as around 25 to 2.75%. In fact, that combined year of, of 08 and 09 is less than 1%. That is the slowest two-year growth period that uh, U.S. economy has experienced since 1981-82. So we're going to be hearkening back, in terms of this downturn, something that's more deeply felt than the last two recessions of the early 90s and in 2001, when, when growth in GDP fell marginally. In fact, in 2001, GDP declined by a tenth of a percent uh, from its peak to trough, not very much at all. Um, and, but this one here is going to feel, again, I think much closer to the uh, 19, uh, early 1980s. Um, you can see that for residential investment, they see that basically continuing to decline but not falling by as much. And some other numbers that are up here for your perusal, uh, they see energy prices coming back at around a $70 uh, price range by the end of the year. Um, and then uh, the inflation rate moderating with the weakening economy. And finally, uh, they see the vehicle sales uh, shifting even lower than, the, uh, uh, than what they believed would occur for 2008. So looking at the pattern for GDP, for example, the blue line is the median uh, forecast. The red lines are the high and low individual forecasts. So what they see is that the fourth quarter, a pretty good decline of over 2% is what will come in when that number is, is revealed to us at the end of the month. But then continuing to decline, but moderating in its decline in the first half of 2009, and then growth occurring in the second half in both the third quarter and fourth quarter. But even by the end of the fourth quarter, growth is just around 2%. Still, again, well below trend. So, uh, and I don't disagree, this sounds like a very logical pattern to be thinking about for the year, that uh, uh, with all of the headwinds, this economy probably still will not be bouncing back very significantly, even by the end of the year. With this underperformance, the unemployment rate is expected to go higher, uh, reaching just under 8% by the end of the year. Uh, we're currently in November at 6.7%. Uh, we will get December's number tomorrow morning, one of the key numbers we'll be getting for the month of January. Um, but even the most extreme individual uh, still sees unemployment rates being below 9%. So again, I think that is uh, relatively good news, especially when you hear some more extreme numbers being tossed out there. Um, so with regard to some of the concerns out there about inflation, well, as you can see, uh, the path of inflation has definitely changed. Uh, we've seen this tremendous disinflation, but in large part that's driven by what's happened to energy prices. And as I had mentioned earlier, we saw this incredible collapse of, of energy prices. So, uh, and uh, when we adjust for, in fact, inflation, uh, what we can see is that the current prices as of December are substantially below uh, levels that we saw even back in the 19, uh, early 1980s. So we've seen this very, very quick adjustment on prices. A lot of this movement on the price of energy 
is being driven by the demand side. It's reflective of the weakening economy, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. Supply cannot react very quickly. So when you get these very volatile movements in the price of this product, it's because of the changing demand, and it's because of the weakness in the economy that's caused it to come back down. In fact, when we look at this as a share of spending dollars, um, we can see that currently uh, we are well below the long-run trend of about 6.5 cents of every dollar spent being devoted to energy goods and services. So again, this is that stimulative effect that, that the lower energy prices will play on consumer spending, where consumers are now uh, spending where the, the peak over here in the summertime, they were up at nearly seven cents of every dollar spent going to fill up the car, pay their gas bill, pay their electric bill. Uh, that has now come down to around five and a half percent. So one and a half cents per dollar spent less going to this, they can spend on other goods and services. Um, from the Fed standpoint, the concern about increasing inflation rates, which had begun to materialize earlier uh, in 2007 into 2008, with this reduction of demand has really begin to, begun to bring down uh, the pricing pressures in the economy as a whole. So this disinflation now has brought down what we call the core rate of inflation, less food and energy prices. Uh, this rate of inflation now is below 2% into this region that has often been referred to as the comfort zone. Uh, for Fed policymakers. So this is giving the Fed uh, more leverage to be able to focus more on sustainable economic growth as its primary concern as compared with inflation. So, you know, to give a sense of, of how the things really changed, especially towards the end of the year, and the reason why it took the National Bureau of Economic Research so long to make a call for a recession. Well, again, as mentioned, we had two quarters that GDP was growing to begin the year. And while jobs began to disappear in January of last year, the losses were not to a level that from a historical standpoint would be, we would normally associate it with a recession. But as you can see, beginning in September, October, and November, uh, those job losses really accelerated. Uh, again, it seems like uh, the economy kind of hit a wall in September and, and all related to this uh, in incredible tight uh, or incredible tightening of credit standards and credit conditions that really uh, had been going on for a while but really took to a whole nother level in September. Uh, so we see job losses that, again, from a historical perspective, especially compared to the last couple of recessions, are quite deep at this point. Expectations are, so one number talking about that uh, tomorrow's number might be, uh, you know, again, in excess of, of, of half a million jobs lost uh, in the month of, of December. So, again, very, very uh, significant loss. So the unemployment rates uh, have moved up, again, 6.7% in December. Um, most of So one of my uglier charts here, um, these are our five states that make up the 7th Federal Reserve District. Um, so what we can, and, and that includes Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Most of our states are matching the nation. So here's the nation, that black line. And most of our states are right, right around that. We're, in fact, doing a bit better here in Illinois, the blue line. We're, so we're still losing jobs, but not as much as the rest of the country. Iowa is actually still showing some job gains. But the one state that stands out in a very negative way is the state of Michigan, uh, who, and, and their issues have been going on now for uh, well over eight years. Their peak of employment occurred in June of 2000. 
They have lost over 400, uh, sorry, 575,000 jobs, uh, just an enormous amount of, of their workforce, uh, in excess of 12% of, of, of their previous peak. And they have the highest unemployment rate in the country. So, and you can see in, in Illinois, you know, we're up there at, at just over 7%. Um, to put that in perspective, you know, uh, a lot of the issues are, that are facing the economy, again, due to the housing sector, uh, California, as we all recognize, is one of the states that is really uh, being affected by housing. Their unemployment rate in California is in excess of 8%. 8.3% uh, is, is the current number. So uh, again, putting things in perspective, where who would have thought that Illinois would be in better shape than California uh, during this recession? Um, with regard to income growth, uh, with, a, with the loss of jobs that have been occurring and, and, and uh, you know, uh, tough periods out there, uh, we're looking at uh, real incomes being unchanged at this point with a year, with year ago. The, the, with the increased amount of job losses in the fourth quarter, we're, when this number comes out at the end of the month, we'll probably see uh, declines occur in, in, real, in real incomes. Um, so the concern is that if people aren't getting jobs, incomes aren't rising, what's going to happen to spending? And as you can see, the concerns are justified. In fact, third quarter spending uh, really fell quite significantly. And this past holiday uh, season, the reports we are getting are, are pretty dismal, all in all. And uh, uh, so, we're, again, when fourth quarter comes out, it wouldn't surprise me to see, again, a pretty significant uh, fall off. So this is challenging profits. Those have been negative. That's translating into huge losses in the stock market. Uh, stock market is down 40% from uh, year over year uh, in 2008. Uh, so, so, again, huge losses there. Uh, but, again, looking at a little bit of positive um, productivity growth has remained very solid. This is our key measurement for improving standards of living in the United States. So we're going through a business cycle. We will get through this, um, and this is certainly underlying, again, why the United States is still a good place to be doing business. And people have wondered why the dollar has strengthened over uh, the last six months of the year, even as our economy has weakened further. And I think that it's a recognition that the United States is still, relatively speaking, in, 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 in okay shape. Um, so, in fact, turning to the trade side, uh, the trade side has been a very supportive part of our economy. In fact, if we eliminated trade in 2008, the out output in the economy was actually negative. Um, so the trade brought us uh, into this positive position. In fact, for the first three months of the year, it contributed over 1.5% to GDP growth. So a huge contribution factor. And that has allowed our trade deficit to begin to rapidly improve. The, it's the, in part, it's because the dollar is off by over 16% from its peak. But going forward, uh, one has to be a bit more concerned about this strength driving our economy. Uh, because what we have seen is that export growth has been very strong. While the problems that we're facing here in the U.S. are being felt all around the world. So as incomes get challenged around the world, demand for goods and services around the world will also be easing. And they'll be buying less goods made within their country, less goods made from without their country, including those from the United States. So one can anticipate that this export growth will, will, will decline, um, and import growth already has turned negative because of the challenges being faced within the U.S., with regard to the manufacturing sector, uh, you know, 
manufacturing all in all had been holding in there, and that was especially true for the Midwest economy outside of the auto industry, which has been going through this long-term transition. Uh, most of our industries have been doing quite well. The steel industry was running full out. Um, the heavy machinery side also doing quite well. But this was all being supported by high commodity prices. So the bad news about these lower energy prices and lower metals prices and so forth is the fact that a lot of that business was being done here in the Midwest. So we will feel those impacts as business gets pu pulled back. And as you can see, more recently, we have seen these uh, reductions. Um, and in fact, capacity utilization, especially towards the end of the year, fell off quite sharply. And you know, talking about the uh, light vehicle industry, uh, sales collapsed down quite sharply. And it impacted our domestic producers, uh, the GM, Fords, and Chrysler, domestically based uh, producers, more than, than others. And in part, it's because uh, they have a specialization still in terms of the light truck market, these more fuel-inefficient vehicles. So while we saw that passenger car or light vehicle sales in total was down about 19% on a year-over-year -year basis, uh, light truck sales were off by 25%. Passenger car sales were only down about 12%, half the decline that occurred otherwise. So there was definitely a movement uh, from one uh, to the other in terms of market share. Um, but we can't ignore the fact that in terms of people think about uh, you know, the, the, what's going on with, with, the, with the Detroit 3, and does that mean we will not have any more U.S. producers if these guys go out of business? And, and it's ignoring the fact that you know, over uh, a, a third of what is produced in the United States is being produced by these foreign nameplates, uh, this red uh, group here, these new domestics. In fact, uh, if we add in the new domestics plus the, de plus the Detroit 3 production, about 75% of vehicles that are sold in the U.S. are produced here. The same number that existed 28 years ago, back in, the 19, back in 1980. What's happened is that there's been a movement away from just having three manufacturers. Today we have 13 different nameplate manufacturers. So the last two topics I want to talk about are kind of the, still the, the risk groups. Um, the first one is the housing sector, which, while still a risk, as I had mentioned to begin, we're closer to the bottom than the top of this. So it, the risk that, that remains has to be thought of as being far more limited today than a few years ago. Um, so when we look at what's been happening, you can see that the declines in residential investment are still quite substantial, but they have been slowing. Uh, and in fact, you can also see that in terms of the drag on economic activity. Uh, during 2008, it was less of a drag than it was in 2007. In part of the reason for this is that there's only so far you can fall. Eventually, you stop building houses. Uh, so zero is a bottom bound. Now, I'm not suggesting we need to be at that level. But I will mention the fact that the forecast by the Economic Outlook Symposium Group has housing starts at the lowest level that the, uh, since, the, uh, since they have started collecting the data on housing starts going back to 1959, it would be the lowest year ever with a much larger population, uh, and much more households. So we're looking at still a fairly dramatic decline. But as you can see, housing now is making up a much smaller part of GDP. At its peak, it was over 6%. Right now, it's just over 3%. So... A 20% decline in housing doesn't have the same impact today as it did a few years ago. So, again, 
as much as we, we think that this is still a struggling sector, this is part of the reason why it's playing less of a macro economic role. If you're involved in that industry, 20% is still 20%. But from a macro standpoint, it's representing a smaller piece of the economy. Problems still exist out there. Inventories of homes remain still quite high. Uh, of course, this is related to what's happening on the selling side as well. And if that picks up, those numbers could come down. And they have been both very aggressive at bringing down housing starts. Uh, and as you can see, both in the Midwest as well as the U.S. as a whole, uh, they're down about 40% from the peak of a year ago. And this has been going on now since 2006. So we've had three years where this industry has been cutting back output, where levels, again, are probably going to be at uh, at least historical lows going back to 1959 uh, this year. And you can see that with regard to the actual level of housing starts for the nation uh, falling quite, quite significantly. Some supportive stuff there, why, we, why one can think about housing eventually bottoming at some point uh, this year. Well, mortgage rates uh, have come down quite, quite low, um, as well as the price of homes have continued to go lower. And we are getting anecdotal reports about consumers starting to get the sense that, uh, you know, now might be a very good time to buy, that, uh, you know, homes are, are clearly more affordable now than, than before. But the regional aspects of this are very important to keep in mind. So here we're looking at the year-over-year uh, -year change, data through the third quarter, on a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, the red states here are states that are experiencing declines in excess of 10%, all the way up to 21% on their home prices. And it's the normal suspects that you would have thought about. It's California, and as I mentioned, California's unemployment rate of over 8% is because of what's happening on their housing sector. But Nevada, Arizona, and, and Florida uh, are experiencing the sharpest pullback in prices. But those are the areas where the prices really soared uh, the largest amounts. Um, the other, this kind of tan area, those are declines of 0 to 10%. You know, here in Illinois, it's down about 2.7%. Uh, Indiana is actually unchanged. The real area that's falling is, is Michigan, which is down by 7.3%. And for them, it's what's happening in their economy. It's this, all these job losses that have been happening uh, for the last eight and a half years that are, that's driving uh, the, the problems in the Michigan housing market. Um, but the blue area, by the way, represents gains of still either zero or half a percent gain, uh, sorry, zero or five percent gain on a year-over-year -year basis. So many parts of the country actually are still experiencing positive uh, home price uh, changes. And if we look at foreclosure maps, again, uh, reflective of the, st of the struggles of those particular regions. Um, here in the Midwest, you can see it's a little pink, uh, and that's because of the manufacturing and what's been happening there. Um, and here you can see the, the Chicago area does have a little red there for Cook County. Uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, we're not clearly, as a region as a whole, we're not as bad as those other parts. Uh, and affordability has improved quite dramatically because of interest rates coming down, because of the price of homes coming down, and, and income still, all in all, has not, have not fallen at this point in real terms. Um, so we see affordability improve. However, even though people might begin to think that now's a great time to buy a home, what happened, especially in September, with these tight credit conditions means that it's going to take a, a more credit-worthy borrower to be able to qualify for mortgages. Um, and consumer attitudes about buying a home remain still quite low, all in all. Um, and 
the senior loan officer surveys that we do at the Fed suggest that lenders are still extremely hesitant to make loans uh, for mortgages. So the last thing to talk about is these tight credit conditions, which in my mind present the greatest risk on the outlook. Um, they are beginning to improve, uh, but we still have a, a ways to go with regard to that improvement. So when we look at what's been happening here, here's just a couple of simple ways of representing what, what has been going on in the credit markets. So we have here two borrowers. You have uh, two corporate borrowers. Your corporate AAA, the green line, best borrowers out there, and then the uh, high-yield borrowers, uh, often referred to as the junk bond uh, type of co corporations. Uh, you know, back in the mid-2007, you know, those junk bond borrowers, you know, they had to pay about 8% to borrow money. It was about just under 6% for the best borrowers. So there was about a 200 basis point spread there. Um, and that we call that difference between those a credit spread. Well, as you can see, during the second half of 07 and all the way through the first half of 08, uh, the risky borrowers continued to see their borrowing costs go higher and higher. In fact, by the middle of the year, uh, their borrowing costs had gotten close to 12%. So there was about a nearly 400 basis point increase in the borrowing costs for these risky borrowers. It doesn't look like much, but that's only because of the scale of this chart. Uh, if we had stopped this chart back in August, it would look dramatic that there was this 50% increase in their <coughs> borrowing costs. Uh, but then in September, what had taken over a year to accomplish this movement up higher, a 400 basis point, happened in a matter of days where we saw it move up from 12% to over 20% in just a couple of months. Um, so there was this uh, additional movement higher of, of nearly 1,000 points, 10% higher. Um, and uh, so when we look at the difference between those two, we get what's called a credit spread. And the credit spread uh, moved up from that 2%, the 200 basis point that I talked about, up to there was the up about 6%, uh, and then it soared up to over 16%. Uh, but as you can see, more recently, things have begun to improve. Still will be regarded as tight, but definitely moving in the right direction. Uh, so keep your fingers crossed kind of thing. The flight to quality has driven down Treasury yields to qu quite low. Uh, you know, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, or last week, it was down to 2.5%, uh, practically, uh, or below 2.5%. So, you know, quite low for 10-year money. Um, and, and that has assisted in terms of bringing down uh, the borrowing costs for the uh, corporate AAA borrowers. And so when we look at the credit spreads here, again, we can see some slight improvement occurring, although, again, some ways still to go. All right, so we now get into monetary policy. And uh, uh, Rick and I were talking uh, earlier before uh, this, this, the presentation. Well, the Fed has brought down interest rates from 5.25% down to zero to a range now, zero to, to, to 25 basis points, zero to a quarter percent. It's like we got an FOMC meeting coming up in two weeks for our president to brief him. It's like, what do we recommend? We, we can't go any lower than zero. Uh, do we have to meet? Uh, so, I mean, clearly, uh, with regard to our primary policy tool, uh, we've gone about as low as you can go. Uh, but we do have a lot of other instruments in play 
And uh, uh, so and, and additional programs are being talked about. In fact, uh, Rick said that uh, he heard some report this morning about that the municipal market might, that, might, that the, uh, the federal government, either through the Fed or through the Treasury, might get involved backstopping uh, municipal bonds so to help out in that market, which, again, has been struggling. Uh, so this has been, again, point is very aggressive monetary policy. Um, and then finally, our best indicator of economic activity that I like to look at, a kind of a snapshot of what's happening in the economy, is our Chicago Fed National Activity Index, which kind of had been holding in there for most of this year, hanging out around a minus 1%, uh, an area that I, had, I would uh, think about uh, being on the cusp of a recession. Um, but then in the, towards the end of the year, uh, definitely collapsed, and to, so it was no surprise to us that on December 1st, that call of a recession uh, was actually made by the National Bureau of Economic Research. So in conclusion, uh, the main points are that growth this year is going to be challenged. Uh, still on a year-over-year -year basis, probably still be positive uh, with a bottom uh, reaching towards the middle of the year. That will make this re uh, recession uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 months, plus or minus, you know, we'll see how many months, which is in line with the, the two recessions that we had that were the longest recessions post-World War II, uh, and that would be the 1973-74 recession and the early 1980s recession, both of which lasted 16 months. So we'll be looking at declines uh, in, in accordance with a length, I think, closer to that. But with the fact that uh, we're going to be looking at underperformance for the economy as a whole, unemployment rates are going to uh, continue to rise with job losses continuing. Uh, but the, given the fact of this underperformance, inflation probably will not be much of a concern, uh, at least this year. Uh, so we can, the Fed does have that room to maneuver. And it's these volatile credit markets that are the number one risk. Housing market, still a drag, but in, in my opinion, less of a risk than it has been in any of the last three years. So thank you. Thank, thanks, Bill. I, I think they're going to be handing out the cyanide tablets any moment now. Um, um, my job is to talk to you a bit about the Chicago regional economy. I, I do feel compelled after um, what I'm going to tell you is going to be somewhat pessimistic, so I do feel I need to tell you at least one economist joke, and this is a br very brief one, all right? How do you tell the difference between an economist and a senile old man? The answer is the economist is the one holding the calculator. All right? So there you have it. So, okay, so I'm going to talk to you about Chicago and what's happening there, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what may be happening in terms of real estate in the, in the, the Chicago market. Um, the biggest thing I think is a, a backdrop for what my conversation is going to be is obviously Chicago fits into this larger macro picture that Bill described so well. So one of the things that I think that I would suggest that you do is to think about what the industrial structure is of Chicago's region and how it's going to be impacted by this particular macro set of circumstances. So there was a very famous urban economist who had a, a famous quote, which was, tell me your industries and I'll tell you your destiny, all right? In my conversation, what I'm going to talk about is not only tell me your industries and am I going to tell you your destiny, but I also want to know who your industry's customers are, all right? Because that's also going to inf influence what your destiny is going to be. Um, so with that, that's the uh, backdrop to what I want to talk about. 
Um, so first of all, I want to have a brief overview of how has Chicago performed in previous recessions, all right? Are there any clues we can learn from previous economic cycles that suggest this is the way Chicago will behave in this particular circumstance? And what's different about this one that might suggest a slightly different pattern? Um, secondly, I want to review very quickly what the city's industrial structure is. So where are risks, where are we most exposed in terms of what sorts of businesses do we most foster in this region? And then I'm going to talk about real estate, all right? Um, if you look at this, the, the shaded area was the last recession, all right? And the blue area is the Chicago um, MSA in terms of um, unemployment um, um, over the period from 2000 to 2008. The red line is the U.S. The key thing that I want you to notice here was during the last recession, the Chicago economy went into it with slower employment growth and then it crashed faster, all right? So we definitely overreacted during that period of time. The other thing that's important to notice is it took us a lot longer to come out of it, all right? So when employment to get back to zero, um, it took us a longer period of time than was the case for the U.S. Now, why was this in the 2000-2001 recession? Does that suggest we're going to have exactly the same pattern this time around? Um, part of the 2000-2001 recession was it was a manufacturing-led recession. Um, so what you did was this region was disproportionately hurt. So Chicago, as sort of the capital of this region, you would have expected also to have borne a bit more of the brunt of this sort of damage. Um, the problem with this is, is this time around, it's a different kind of recession. Um, clearly, manufacturing is being impacted, but clearly financial services and other sorts of business and professional services are also being affected, probably to a greater extent than they certainly were in the 80-81 recession. So maybe the 80-81 recession isn't necessarily the, I mean, the 2000-2001 recession isn't the best example for looking at what might be going on here. Um, if you look at the structure of Chicago's economy, what you can see is essentially if you're at one, it suggests that we have exactly the same composition as the U.S. economy. What it demonstrates is Chicago's economy remarkably mirrors the structure of the U.S. economy as a whole. Um, so therefore, you would think we would perform sort of similar to what the U.S. pattern is. Where we are slightly overexposed is in business and professional services, where you have roughly about 0.3% um, or about 30% more employment in that particular um, industry sector, and also in financial activities, same thing. So these are two sectors where we have higher employment concentration in, and these are two sectors which many economists right now are arguing are particularly uh, vulnerable in the current economic circumstances. So these are areas that also, for the most part, are the large consumers of commercial real estate, all right? So as these sectors are challenged, that's going to suggest that employment levels in some of these areas are going to be hurt, and Chicago's a little bit more exposed than, say, the nation as a whole. Um, where you can see we have roughly sort of exactly similar averages are things like manufacturing and the other um, sectors in terms of um, behavior. So keep this structural picture of Chicago in mind when you're thinking about how the economy is going to respond during this particular economic cycle. Um, if you look at the unemployment rate, what you can see is a similar type of thing. The problem is that Chicago's unemployment rate, um, we did not as well during most of the 2000s. As you can see, Chicago's was persistently higher than the U.S. average um, during this period of time. And then we began spiking faster going into 2008 in terms of unemployment, again, suggesting that we're nece not necessarily re performing exactly at the U.S. average right now in terms of behavior. Um, this is the one that I think you should probably pay the most attention to. 
Um, Chicago's growth during the period of 2000 was really driven by phenomenal expansion in business and professional services. It was the restructuring of Chicago's economy that made it so successful during this period of time. The problem is, is as you can see, is, is again, when you went into this recession, we actually lost jobs at a faster clip in business and professional services than the U.S. as a whole. This was a real mystery to most economists. So, you know, shouldn't we have lost them at exactly the same rate as the rest of the country? And the only thing you can sort of tease out of this is it was who the customers were of our business and professional service firms, all right? They were Midwest manufacturers, all right? They were other Midwest firms. And because of that, they were disproportionately exposed to the losses and these other sort of regionally based um, reactions to the economy. This time around, you have to ask the same sort of question. It's sort of like, again, who are your customers, all right? If your customers are the ones that are in trouble, then you're going to have the same sort of disproportionate reaction in terms of this. I mean, a good example locally would be a firm like Leo Burnett, all right, a giant advertising agency. Um, three years ago, they won the bulk of the GM account. Um, at the time, that seemed like a real good thing. Um, you know, nowadays, you know, maybe not so much, you know. Um, so, you know, you have to think of it in terms of that. So how's that going to impact them when that's their customer? Um, so I would watch this particular figure a lot when you're thinking about how um, the economy is going to respond. So if you had to sum up, um, Chicago in the last economic um, recession that we had uh, definitely underperformed the country, all right? We definitely uh, suffered harder and uh, had a more protracted sort of decline, and it took us a bit longer to pull out. Um, this was really seemed to be caused because Chicago was, again, more linked to the Midwest economy than it was to other parts of the uh, economy. And this, again, had sort of a, a, a negative impact. This time around, it's less clear as to how that relationship is going to play out. Um, on balance, Chicago has been less exposed to the firms that are directly related to the financial meltdown. Okay? I mean, this is obviously clearly concentrated in New York, where investment banking is. But the Chicago Tribune pointed out that almost 1.3 million square feet of space in Chicago is leased by firms that are um, uh, directly related to the financial meltdown. So, I mean, this is a significant number of, of, um, of real estate that's going to be under some sort of pressure during this period of time. And then on the housing side, the one advantage we probably have coming out of this cycle will be um, we were less overheated going into it, so therefore it's going to be probably a little bit easier for us to pick up coming out of it. Um, we're going to have less of an overhang. There was less speculative building except perhaps in the condo market. So therefore on housing, we might have some improvement coming out of that in the, uh, in when the recovery comes about. So how's this play into real estate? Okay, well, ULI, as you guys all probably well know, does an annual survey of their membership. Many of you probably answered this survey in 2009. And their description of Chicago was something less than charitable. But then to put this in context, which I will, it was less than charitable for almost every city um, that you could name. Um, their description of Chicago was looks like New York but behaves like Atlanta. Um, I don't think that was uh, necessarily a compliment when they suggested that. Um, they said the key issues um, for Chicago is uh, buildings pop up too easily, all right? Um, so it's, it's been a little bit too easy to build, a little bit too easy to just sort of have new structures popping up. And this has led to what has long been a tradition in Chicago, which is um, A-space cannibalization, which is the same law firms keep moving from the same A building to the next A building and then to the next A building. And they're not getting any bigger, and they're not new firms. They're just the same law firm relocating all the time. So the problem is, is you're getting this A-space cannibalization because you have these new, shinier buildings. They get a better deal, and they pull out and move there. 
um, that's a problem. So there's not been the sense that there's a lot of organic growth in the Chicago market that actually, actually accounts for absorbing new space in the market. Um, second, it was little or no rent growth. Um, obviously, everybody's going to be really challenged in terms of that in this coming year. Um, you know, your simply tenants are going to be demanding more and more concessions. There's not going to be the ability to have a lot of pricing power if you're a landlord. And so obviously that's going to be a problem not just for Chicago, but for basically every real estate market. Um, vacancy rates are predicted now to go into the upper teens um, for the city proper and probably over that for the suburban areas. Um, suburban areas, if you think of these particular situation of looking at, um, you know, this business service pattern, um, what you expect is there'd be even higher layoffs probably in suburban areas because you're going to have back office consolidation and more opportunities there to sort of bring down costs. So your suburban commercial space may be even more um, at risk. Um, condo market, it was estimated about 25% of the Chicago market was bought by speculators. Um, obviously, um, that's going to take some time to work off in terms of that. Um, apartments were seen as one section that will actually will do well in this economy, and that's mostly because either people who lost their homes have to live someplace, or in Chicago's case, we still are a real magnet for attracting young talent into the region, and so therefore you're still going to have an inflow of young talent, and they're going to uh, push into the apartment market. Um, they suggested the 2016 Olymp Olympic buzz is a real plus for Chicago, that it's going to give us a certain cachet, and it certainly will make us sort of seem more global, and this will have some positive, at least, marketing benefits for us. Um, again, on the plus side, our, business, our buildings are still cheap relative to many other markets, all right? Um, so when things do right themselves as investment opportunities, they probably are going to seem a little bit better positioned than assets um, that, that seem like they're extremely overpriced at this point. Um, another two negative, well, another key negative are state and local finances are a wreck, all right, at this point. Um, there's going to be a lot of pressure to raise taxes or raise revenues. And I'm sure many of these are going to be in very, very creative ways. And many of these are probably going to fall on property owners um, as, as much as um, any other way, simply because they're going to try to avoid putting on a lot of these increases on, um, on uh, individual taxpayers. Um, but there is going to be a lot of pressure in both state and local government to sort of expand the revenue base um, over the next couple of years to sort of shore up their um, very poor financial position. And the last wild card is sort of um, is the election of President Obama. Um, the one thing that Obama offers is the possibility of really having an urban strategy for the first time in many, many years. Um, there's already discussions within the Obama administration of having some sort of an urban czar or an urban strategy. Um, there's things that he's uh, proposed, such as as part of the stimulus bill, uh, making all federal buildings essentially sort of weed certified or green. And, you know, this is the type of stuff that, again, could have some sort of a push into the um, urban areas. And also, it's gonna, a lot's going to depend on where the stimulus bill comes out in terms of what kind of infrastructure is invested in and where it's located. So that could have a positive effect on that. Now, to put Chicago's uh, market in context, these are just some um, comments that they had in terms of where real estate is overall. Okay, so overall, 2009 obviously is pretty bleak, all right? Um, you know, people grow, grew used to just having cap rate compression being the way you could make money 
in real estate, and that's obviously gone away. Um, I like this, this particular um, quote that they had in the report, which is, it's hunkering downtime where the initial winners will be companies that can outweigh, outmanage their competition. This reminded me of like the slogan from Survivor, you know, it's like real estate survivor, all right? So if you can outmanage and outthink and outweigh your competition. Um, what he also suggests is the only way you're gonna make it through this is to really get back to basics, and that's to be a property manager, all right? And really squeezing out efficiencies where you can because the financial opportunities really aren't gonna be there at least in the short run. Um, they say on the plus side, if you survive, you can purchase very cheap assets um, and you can position yourself well for recovery, all right? Um, Short-term development strategies are everything from using mixed use and infill, um, transit-oriented um, properties, and green buildings. And again, I think with the Obama administration, probably green buildings are gonna get a little bit more of a pop than they would have otherwise. Um, if you look at it from a sector point of view, um, these are the recommendations where buy or hold multifamily, um, apartments are gonna get a boost just because of demographics and the economic cycle. Um, buy or hold industri industrial, if it's located on a global pathway, and arguably because of Chicago's rail um, location and because of O'Hare, we are on one of those global pathways, so industrial has some advantage to hold on to. Um, hold office, if you can be creative and you can keep long-term leases, um, locked in that this is probably going to play well in the, at least for the short term. If you don't have people with long-term leases, it's obviously going to be a lot more challenging. Um, hold hotels, the recommendation was only because you're not going to be able to sell them. Um, um, buy distressed land. Um, a, a year ago at the Kellogg Real Estate Conference, this, they asked one guy, what was your only investment opportunity? He said it was distressed land. That was the only opportunity he felt there was in real estate. So buy distressed land. I guess you can put buy distressed condos now as the second option in this distressed category. And then last but least is, is pray for retail, okay? Retail is the sector that's really gonna be under the most extreme pressure in many ways. Um, as you can see, we are completely over-retailed as a country, all right? Relative to other Western countries, we are a ratio of six to one in the number of stores we have per capita, all right? So we love retail, we love shopping. Um, the problem is, is there's gonna be potentially massive consolidation. So a lot of space is gonna come on the market. And it's gonna become very hard to sort of, I mean, the, the concessions that um, store owners are gonna be asking for um, in this kind of environment are gonna be pretty extreme. And again, with the number of major um, operations that are looking at either bankruptcy or other sorts of consolidation, um, that's gonna be a real problem. Um, they suggest the only bright spot might be centers with first tier groceries and drug stores. Again, the, you know, perhaps because of depression, drug stores will be doing well. Um, but um, you know, other than that, um, you know, um, and, yeah, I mean, perhaps we could add liquor stores to that list. Um, but if you, look at, if you look at this, I mean, again, it suggests that almost all the sectors are under, uh, are under a lot of pressure. So the sort of the intermediate message when you would think about Chicago, both in the terms of just a very challenging overall macroeconomic picture, and then you layer in a um, industry, real estate industry right now, which is just gonna be facing a lot of problems right now because they're working off either sort of very low demand or working off excesses that have been created by sort of past behavior within the sector. Um, so with that, Bill and I are happy to take your questions. So thanks very much. Consecutive falling quarters uh, of GDP growth, and 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 yet um, you showed one in, in the end of 07, and then there are two now, third and fourth quarter. 
uh, yet people are saying, well, the recession really began in the fourth quarter of 07. Can you kind of uh, write me in, sure. in, in that? Um, although I always took it that the definition of a, between a recession and a depression is when you lose your job, and it's a depression when I lose my job. Um, I think it's a very good illustration of the fact that that definition that is often cited by the media is just plain wrong. Um, it is not the definition of a recession. In fact, if you look at my chart for even 2001 recession, we did not have two consecutive negative quarters of GDP. We had three negative quarters, but none of them consecutive. Uh, in fact, the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at monthly data and makes the call based upon these monthly indicators. And even though GDP, and this was one of the controversial parts of their call, that even though GDP had two positive quarters in both the first and second, they really were looking at what was that fact that when did economic activity peak? And in terms of employment, employment clearly peaked in December. It began to fall in January of 08. Uh, with regard to industrial production, that kind of seemed to stabilize because uh, while, um, and, and for most of the first half of the year, it, it pretty well was flat. And so it peaked in the latter part, in part because while capital goods and everything was going higher, the auto sector was going lower. So net, it was flat. So if you're looking for peak, when economic activity peaked, it's not a bad point to, to pick that December of 07 as the date. So economic activity peaked in, in December, and then the recession therefore began with the declines beginning in January. Uh, Bill or Rick, could you explain a little bit about consumer confidence or purchasing price indexes and how they are playing out to forecast economic uh, outlooks for the future? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, consumer confidence, as, and I'll throw in there business confidence as well. Uh, those terms, I must say, uh, it's a good question that you're asking because uh, we're hearing this from more and more contacts that they seem to be talking about the fact that, you know, business confidence is so poor or consumer confidence, and a lot of them blaming the media and so forth. In fact, when you do look at some of the studies, uh, consumer confidence measurements does seem to react to uh, either how much people are paying for gasoline at the pump or, or what they're seeing on the, in the media reports. So as economists, we have often tended to to, to, at least from my standpoint, discount the, the consumer confidence measurements. They have plunged enormously low. Um, one hopes that that's not going to lead into an economic cycle that, which would be reflective of these huge declines in consumer confidence. It is part of the uh, economic indicators side, so I mean, we can't ignore it completely from, from what uh, it still, still has some economic value. But all in all, I, I still, if I was going to give it a grade in terms of economic information, I'd give it a C. For, uh, for how, how helpful it is for determining uh, how things are going. I like to, uh, to, to throw in what I, I like looking at consumer spending, which has not been great. But I think that's uh, what people say and what they do are oftentimes can be two different things. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people have been you know, frustrated. You, you see in the news where the, the, the banks have been grabbing all this money and it doesn't seem like they're putting it to work. And I'm wondering why the government can't structure that something that says, look, I'm not giving you this 350, the second half of this $350 billion unless I know 20% of it is going to be lent out there and performing. Because all they're doing is banking it and buying other banks or investing in bonds and making the spread, you know, or whatever they're doing. But they're not lending. 
That's an excellent question. Um, and, and part of it gets into this whole concept of, you know, how much the, 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 we have moved into the government playing a much deeper role in the private sector. And one can have a long discussion about how appropriate that is. Uh, both, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 Rick and I, you know, kind of being here in Chicago and uh, teaching at, I teach at the University of Chicago. It's hard for me to, to be out there, you know, talking about the, the, the benefits of having the government involved in, in the private sector and lending. We're clearly doing it because of extreme circumstances. The problem is, is that part of what got us into this problem is that there were a lot of loans being made to places where they should not have been making those loans. So as you go out and mandate to a business that you have to make these loans when it might not be prudent to be making those loans, um, that's the kind of moral hazard risk that you run. Um, it's kind of it's, it's, it's akin to Fed policy you know, where, we, where we bring down interest rates but then we leave it up to the private sector with those lower interest rates on, on, on what to do with the monies. The objective is, is that when you bring down those interest rates, the opportunity cost of, of holding that money now is a lot, a lot uh, lower. You, you'd be much better off making a loan and, and, and the demand for those loans should increase. So it's, it's, it's akin to that, I would think, is what's trying to be accomplished. But again, be careful about mandating to the private sector uh, what kind of investments to make. This is a little little different than Rick, his Rick's question. Rick's up here, but by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Hospitals and other nonprofit organizations often rely on selling bonds in order to pay for their capital projects, like big construction projects. When do you see that market opening up again? Well, I mean, as, as Bill indicated, there, there was some indication this morning that the uh, Obama administration is talking about backstopping the municipal bond market. Um, and the idea would be is that would inject liquidity back into that market, similar to what was done with the commercial paper market. So the expectation is, I mean, clearly it's an underperforming market right now. Um, clearly people, I mean, given what historic default rates are in those particular kinds of issues, um, they're extraordinarily low, um, you know, over any sort of cycle you've looked at. I mean, um, and yet there still has been an inability to go to market and, and unless you're willing to go to market at excessively high rates. Um, so hopefully with some backstopping or some guarantees. Um, the one thing that's still playing out in that area, which is unsure of, is, is the failure of the monoline insurers. Um, when the monoline insurers went away, it became less clear as to sort of exactly how these things were getting backstopped. Um, and I think that's one of the things that hopefully is going to be ad addressed, you know, fairly shortly. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, Bill, about your comment about the oil prices being tied to supply-demand fundamentals. Um, I would almost wonder if it also has to do with the futures and options market and the way that they have bid up the price of oil and uh, whether, in a way, that's similar to what happened in real estate with securitization and the derivatives market, which also caused a similar sort of spike in value that oftentimes wasn't related to the underlying asset. Okay, so I guess this is a question which has been talked about through most of, uh, of the early part of this year when energy prices began to move up quite sharply of how much of this maybe is being driven by speculative uh, type of, uh, of issues. Um, uh, and, you know, I was actually at a meeting uh, with the National Association of Business Economists uh, and, and the Board of Governors in, in Washington uh, and uh, the, 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 this, the chairman actually asked some of, the, some of these uh, people who work in these areas about this, and, and they, because they were talking about the speculative uh, type of demand 
uh, driving it up. And the chairman asked, well, where are the inventories? And that's, that's really the key thing here, is that if this is speculative, um, you know, these inventories need to be stored because what you're doing is you're, you're in essence saying, I'm buying it today because I could sell it for more in the future. And yet inventories, when you looked at the inventory, uh, you know, they were basically non-existent. I mean, it really was a hand-to-mouth kind of, of, of situation where the demand had really outstripped uh, the amount of supply, which one has to think about going forward, and that's, you know, where, where will the stability be in this particular market? Uh, we just had, I just had a meeting with the Canadians this morning, and, th and that's a big part of, of their economy is uh, uh, these uh, raw materials and commodity-based uh, output. And they're very concerned about how energy prices have collapsed as much and hoping not, you know, for at least cer certainly more stability makes their planning uh, for how, how their country gets run a lot easier because right now they're looking at some pretty significant uh, deficits on, on, their, uh, on their government. Uh, what do you think are the long-term implications of the enormous deficits that we're running, the talking about a trillion dollars for years to come? You want to take it first? I'll take it first. Um, ch challenges. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's very interesting. I wonder if, if, if we're going to learn our lessons from the, the late 1990s when we were, in fact, running surpluses uh, towards the end. And, of course, uh, the first, uh, or President Bush... Uh, when he was running for for uh, for office, uh, made this big point initially that you know these this excess amount of money, well, it's your money, you deserve it back. Uh, as an economist, I kind of appreciate that during good times, uh, when you are, when you do run these deficits during bad times, during good times, it's not a bad idea to have some surpluses put away and banked, um, and that during the bad times you run deficits. Well, I don't think anybody here would argue the fact is that we're facing some pretty uh, significant issues. So, you know, I think now it is appropriate to be running these deficits. Uh, I think that a lot of the administration plans on additional spending are going to have to, you know, reality is going to set in of what can be done given these, these huge amounts of, of deficits. Um, but, you know, hopefully the lesson will be learned that when the economy begins to improve, and it will, again, I'm totally believing of that, uh, we're going to see uh, the deficits uh, moderate. All that, that being said, uh, our, our debt-to-GDP ratio, while still elevated, is, is nowhere near levels that we've had in the past. For example, uh, you know, uh, right after World War II, uh, we had about 100% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio for, for our country. You know, we're sitting now at around 60 to 70%. So we're well below that. And to give you another comparison, in modern times, uh, Japan is looking at 150%. Uh, debt to GDP ratio. So all in all, you know, we I think we do have that that flexibility uh, to be able to do what we need to do. Uh, one just hopes that when things turn, we also understand that it's a two-way street, and that it wouldn't be uh, the worst thing to actually run some uh, surpluses during the good times. Uh, could you make a comment on the fact that? Um over the, the course of the last few years, uh, we hear in the, uh, the media and obviously the newspapers and everywhere that uh, consumer debt has been rising at a fantastic rate. Uh, you hear all sorts of figures out there about how much debt people are carrying on their credit cards and so forth. And in the past, um, people were able to um, take a home improvement line of credit out or a loan at, at a lower interest rate, obviously, to pay off that higher debt. Uh, with people's uh, house prices, uh, uh, prices going down, how are they going to be able to do that? How are they going to be able to get out from under that debt 
Um, and also with unemployment rising, some of those people are, are, are taking their credit cards and they're putting some of their essentials on the credit card. So is this a, a burgeoning problem that the Fed is looking at? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Um, we are looking at it. We're looking at it very closely because uh, oftentimes you hear about what is the next shoe to drop, and people are very much focused on what's happening on the credit card side of, of the business. Uh, you're right. Uh, previously, people were able to take advantage of the increasing uh, uh, appreciation of their, of their home and use their home almost like an ATM to be able to cash out when they needed to. Uh, uh, if they got themselves a little bit uh, too much in debt, they, they would be able to put that on a longer-term financing uh, situation. Um, and all in all, though, uh, when you look at um, uh, either uh, payments to finance the debt, uh, given the low interest rates, that, that environment that we've been in, all in all, up to this point, the consumer has been in pretty good shape. I say that, but this is before we start looking at these huge job losses that began pretty much in the fourth quarter of last year. Um, and that will clearly challenge this issue. So um, I easily could have put up there uh, probably my third concern would be the, 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 un, the consumer and their uh, portfolio and their balance sheet uh, for 2009. Again, that's two-thirds of our economy. I'm not very optimistic on the consumer to begin with, but that is definitely a risk that this could be an even worse situation for them uh, if this becomes a, a true burdensome part of their of – their, uh, Outlook. Hi, uh, Charlie Camber, Deloitte Consulting. Uh, the question is, do you anticipate a revolution in economy uh, that will impact and affect the future of the country during this recession? Like major changes, major, uh, you know, things that will impact in a different way, in a better way for the future of the country. So will, will there, in fact, be this change? Yeah, major changes. Yeah. Like, like, you know, I call it revolution, but you call it... That's fine. Rick, why yeah. you um, I mean, it's an interesting point. I, mean, I, I think that you, you do have a sense in which probably some things that probably wouldn't have been examined in the past will be examined. And I think there's certain patterns which you could say, I mean, if you look at just sort of the twin deficits that the U.S. is facing, particularly in... Um, healthcare and, and in Social Security, you can say it's not a sustainable pattern and there may be more emphasis of trying to address some of these things in a different way than in the past. You know, um, the reality is, is it's, a, it's still a political process and it's harder to get some of these things done um, in, in the short run than maybe um, people would like to, like to see them happen. Um, I, I think the interesting issue is, is that this is such a there's, a, there's a global component to what's going on, and there's also a sense that there could be significant change in other parts of the world economy. So I think part of it is understanding how this will play <coughs> out, not just in the U.S., but also in other places, particularly China and some of the other emerging economies right now. Do you have the power to be able to come up with different ideas to pass on to Bernanke and, like, revolutionary ideas? Are there anything you two might discuss, or you privately? at uh, U of C to your students? Any crazy ideas you might have to revolutionize the economy that you wouldn't necessarily tell them directly? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if, if, if either of us would have the opportunity of having a private conversation with Bernanke, uh, I, I think I could speak for Rick. Neither of us would share that with you. Uh, that, that being said, I mean, there are some very interesting, thing, interesting things that are going to be happening. Um, 
you know, we're clearly going to be looking at uh, a major restructuring of the financial system. Um, after, after all of this travail that we've gone through, once the stability begins to come into play, and probably even before we fully reach that stability, uh, there's going to be a lot of policymakers trying to figure out what is the proper way to, to add sensible regulation uh, without having the pendulum swing perhaps too far uh, as, as what happened uh, following the corporate governance scandals uh, where the Sarbanes-Oxley, many people believe, uh, moved uh, the pendulum to, to be a little bit too restrictive and kept a lot of businesses from, from coming to the U.S. because of that uh, overburdensome type of regulation. Um, and it's going to be interesting also how, how the country deals with some changes, in particular in the Midwest economy. Here we've been, uh, Rick and I have been very fascinated with trying to see what is the proper way of, of allowing the transitions which have been underway in the automotive industry to continue to proceed, trying to separate out uh, the challenges that have been added to the burden of this industry by this credit conditions uh, versus what should have been, you know, versus the changes that should be taking place regardless and what is the best way of ultimately making uh, these companies profitable and successful in a globalized economy. Um, when they choose which city is going to host the 2016 Olympics, whether it's a yes or a no for Chicago, how significant do you think that's going to be on our economic recovery, either negative or positive? Um, I, I think, well, as you said, when, when they make the decision, um, you know, I clearly say Chicago has a good shot at it right now, winning it. Um, but I, th I think in terms of it, it's, it's almost more of a perception thing. Um, I think that the, the issues are being, obviously right now, are going to be one, financing it. Um, which is going to be challenging at best in the current environment, particularly if you're not going to have significant government financing av available to do that. So if it's going to be privately based, that's going to be hard. Um, I think if you look at it from um, part of why the mayor is so fascinated in Chicago getting this, is I think he thinks this will help make trans Chicago transition from being the sort of capital of the Midwest to being truly a global city, or at least having a perception of being global. And I think that he feels that in the long run, that's a marketing advantage that Chicago can you, you really use to uh, play up its future economic potential. Um, so I think that as, as much as the Olympics would give you the opportunity to showcase Chicago to the rest of the world, much as Beijing was showcased to the rest of the world in the last Olympics, um, it becomes the type of thing where it, it can be an effective tool. The question is, is it a cost-effective tool for, for achieving those sorts of goals? Um, I have to apologize. Um, this question is designed to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the federal bailout, and particularly comparing our bailout to Gordon Brown's bailout in the UK. Um, they negotiated 12% uh, negotiated dividend. We get 5%. They negotiated thing, everything in writing. We didn't. They get a seat on the boards of directors of the companies that they are bailing out. We don't. Um, I'm wondering if you have any comment on the terms that uh, we emerged with. Well, if you give me an option, I would say no. I really want that comment. I think that, again, it harkens back to this issue about how we like to think of, of business being done in the U.S. versus uh, other parts of the world. Um, and it was interesting. I was at the National Association for Business Economics uh, 50th annual meeting in October. And it was right on the cusp of a lot of these issues beginning to make themselves pretty apparent. Um, the tone 
uh, which was very interesting to me, was how much there had been a, a real step towards uh, by a number of, of pretty significant policymakers talking about uh, having our economy far more regulated. And of course, the concern is, is that uh, as you become more regulated, uh, you know, is the, is the government going to be the best at making some of these decisions? And you know, it, if, we, if we take a big step towards being more of a European-style model with a much bigger safety net, uh, uh, you know, then that's, if that's what we choose to do, that's fine. But just be aware that the growth rates that we might be looking at are going to be closer akin to those type of growth rates than the, than the much higher growth rates that we have enjoyed historically here in the United States. So those are the kind of things that we need to think about. Again, this moral hazard of, of, of moving towards these, this greater regulatory uh, involvement by the government. Uh, part of the problems with the bailout was the credit rating agencies. And they didn't seem to understand these packaging of all these home loans and mortgages to all over the world. Has, has that changed at all um, going forward? And do they really understand you know, the complexities of these issues? And um, I mean, I would, I would say that the certainly the credit rating agencies uh, uh, played a role in this. But you know, uh, I would just say the people that were actually buying these things as well. I mean, there was some certain burden of responsibility that has to be assigned to the people buying them uh, to know what they were buying, uh, not just strictly relying upon a credit, a credit rating agency. Um, so, but you know, uh, it, was, it was clearly uh, a misstep on, on many individuals' parts to, a, to an extreme degree. And I think it all had to do about incentives, that there were, uh, there were no incentives to actually go back and be able to put back some of this responsibility on the originators of, of some of these loans. So uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting. And it's going to be part of this financial restructuring that I was alluding to. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna, I think it's going to be very broad encompassing. Uh, yeah, over the last you know, year, we've read a lot about what has caused the recession, the various factors that came into play. Um, interested if you could give just a snapshot of what you think were the key milestones, just kind of in a nutshell. And also, um, on the back end, what do you see as the key milestones that are going to bring us out of this? All right, so I would say that if I had been invited to speak to the group in August, my position would have been, as I kind of concluded at the end of you, looking at the Chicago Fed National Activity Index, that we were kind of on the cusp of a recession. And I, and I really believe through August that we would, in fact, while growth wouldn't be great, we would actually avoid having an outright decline, major decline in economic activity. Uh, but then the real issue came into play in September, uh, you know, certainly with, uh, with what happened with uh, Lehman and then followed shortly after that with AIG. Uh, that seemed to be the pinnacle, uh, uh, linchpin of what was happening with regard to these credit markets, and, and things really began to fall, fall apart uh, right around that period. So that, that is the area where, I, you know, economies tend not to just run out of steam. They, we don't get tired of doing business. It usually takes some kind of a, of a major negative economic shock, and that was it. So an economy that was already on the cusp, that was enough to, to have us go. So by October, I was thinking recession. Uh, was almost now un unavoidable, given that we were on the cusp of a recession. That was a pretty significant event. What it's going to take for us to get out of it, as I mentioned, um, there are still there are positive things out there. I, I, I gave that list. Energy prices are lower, so that's going to be helpful. We're, the housing market will probably, uh, most likely, 
stopping a drag with regard to economic activity. And while I don't expect to see a V-shaped recovery in housing, just the fact that it's not declining further uh, will be helpful. And then let's not discount fiscal and monetary stimulus. Um, and and, and, and that, uh, those factors all in all will ultimately have some traction on the economy. Yeah, um, just, just to add to that, there was a comments at Princeton who wrote a good paper explaining what sort of triggered all this. And he basically said that there were three things that he felt to happen. One was a mismatching of maturities. So you got companies starting to roll over long-term stuff in the overnight market. And essentially, as soon as that market froze up, they were exposed because they couldn't refinance this debt that they were, mis that they were mismatching the maturities on. This was compounded by the leverage that most of these companies were carrying. I mean, Lehman was at 30 to 1. And so it created what he considered just a liquidity spiral at that point. And as soon as you got into that environment, he said that you essentially didn't have a way to stop it. I mean, unwinding that kind of spiral once it occurs was what he suggested really sort of triggered all this sort of behavior. Okay, I guess maybe I get the last question. All right. And then we'll close it out. Um, in your macroeconomic models, as we climb out of this recession, how important is demographics going to be and the spending patterns of the different age groups as we come through this recession, many of us that qualify as baby boomers start to spend less, look at our savings accounts, start to spend more, uh, start to save more. If we start saving more, become less of the economy than the two-thirds that consumers are now, if we want to sell our big houses and move into smaller things, is that going to lengthen the, the recovery time? Is it a factor? Where do you see that? But it's a comment. I mean, I think I, I agree with you. I mean, I think demographics is one of the things you have to watch when you think about anything because there's clearly a, an income pattern that people have over their life cycle and to how they spend their income. Um, and you're right. As we get older, I mean, we tend to save more and we tend to also make less income and we tend to become more conservative in our behaviors. I mean, the, the, the differences that can occur is, is one is, is if, if productivity continues to increase, then future generations will be able to make the income to sort of support all of this and make this all work. So there's a big bet here on having an extremely highly productive U.S. economy, which also suggests a big investment in education as being part of the key to doing that to sort of prop this stuff up. Um, the other thing that's coming a little bit different is the behavior of boomers moving into retirement, which is um, thanks, thanks to the current recession and what happened to all of our 401ks, we're, we're never going to retire, all right? <laughs> um, so because we're never going to retire, I mean, we're never going to see our income sort of in decline in the same sort of ways. There's also demographic reasons for why boomers will continue to be in demand, simply because they have a skill set that in many cases the, the next generation doesn't really have. So they're needed in the workplace for a variety of reasons. So you know, for that, it's, it's a different pattern than the past, because I think if you probably pulled most of the people in this room, very few of us would say, well, geez, you know, at 60 or 65, I'm assuming that that's going to be the end of my productive career, and that'll be it. I mean, I think most people are now looking at working in some capacity past that age, and, and that should have you know, some positive effect in the future. Yeah. Bill, Rick, thank you so much. Let's give a round of applause. Okay, just a couple things real quick. Uh, passed out right now is the evaluation form. We, we look at these very closely and monitor our, our progress on satisfying your needs. Please give us some ideas for future events. We will be back on our second Thursday schedule next month uh, here again at Maggiano's. And also want to announce uh, just got scheduled at Allstate's headquarters um, up in Northbrook. We'll be next Febru on February 26th, we said. February 26th, we'll be holding a green leasing seminar 
uh, for existing buildings. So if you're interested in the process of creating a green lease uh, in existing buildings for your properties and leasehold interests around the country, um, come join us. More information will be coming out. Anything else for me to cover? Fill out your uh, forms, and thank you for joining us.